get one case. Maybe I'll get one. Okay, so so good morning. We're 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 in Romans, and uh, we did a bit of an introduction last week, but we're in, uh, I would say, a critical part of the book, which is chapter one, because uh, chapter one of Romans orients the whole book, and um, we're gonna we're gonna see some of that today. I want to give you an idea. You know, we we talked big picture last time. Where is the book headed? And I suggested that it's headed toward. Um, this admonition or exhortation in chapter uh, 12 that we need a renewed mind. And and uh, al along the way, you know, he's going to build up a lot of theology before he gets to that conclusion. And what I suggested was that there are problems that he is pointing out uh, that face humanity apart from Christ that need to be fixed. And, and the book's going to cover all of that. The, the immediate unit that we're in as we start the book uh, begins in the middle of chapter one, and it goes into chapter really three and four. Um, and in fact, he starts an initial uh, thought in chapter one that we're fixing to look at that he brings to a conclusion early in chapter three um, when when he says basically in, in chapter three, verse nine, for we've already uh, charged or we've already you know established that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Um, and, and that's where he's headed at, at the beginning. The, the place the apostle wants to start uh, is to deal with the problem of sin and, and what, what that means uh, for humanity apart from Christ. Um, so that's the, the bigger unit of thought, and it'll, it'll take you know, at least a couple of weeks to go through that. But we want to kind of see it introduced today here in chapter one. Um, the apostle starts, as it, as it were, with the solution, but he doesn't fully explain it. Then he goes to the problem, which is sin, which he will argue from chapter one to chapter three that we are, quote, under sin, and we'll have to talk about what that means. Um, so let's let's start with the solution, but but then really get into this problem. And, and as I've said before, and I'll say it again on this, this week's recording, if you go through the book and you let it speak for itself, and especially if we can start talking about these ideas using the words Paul uses and not necessarily the words we use at church, um, what he will do is give us some things because we're going to learn some things we didn't know. And he's going to take some things away because we're going to have to unlearn some things we thought we knew Uh because that's just the nature of learning the, the Bible. And, and Romans does a lot of that. Um, when I was young, I was taught about a, a Romans road uh, for evangelism. And, and I, I now think that uh, while well-intended, that's, that's not correct, uh, what I was taught. H however, there is a Romans road, but, but, but that to, to think about that, to think about the fact that Romans present something about evangelism uh, is true, but but incomplete. Uh, the apostle is interested in a much bigger picture. And as you look in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. My translation has a note there. And if you look in for, you know, a King James and a New King James, you're going to see that he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Um, the, the translation note uh, in my CSB says, other manuscripts add of Christ. Uh, I think that should be there. I think that's probably what the apostle said. Um, he says, I'm not ashamed um, of the gospel of Christ. And, and then he answers the question, why? Uh, because it, 
the it refers to the gospel. This gospel, this good news, this euangelion, this uh, word we talked about a week ago, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And I, and I want to stop there and, and, and point something out. Uh, he starts with a message that may seem simple to us because so many people say they believe it. Um, and, and I contend that many people in practice as Christians do not. Uh, and there's a lot of ways this, this comes out. Um, many churches will have a statement of faith, something to indicate to someone if they go to the, say, the website as to where the church stands on things. And it's common, especially here in the South, for, for the church to say they believe in faith alone and, you know, grace alone, Christ alone, all that stuff. But then you find out if you just read the whole statement that they really don't, or at least they believe things that are inconsistent with that statement. So, for example, you know, Paul says here the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, we're going to have to unpack some of these words like salvation, and we'll get to that. But I want to stay big picture for a moment. Uh, if, if Paul or anybody else in the scripture uh, were to teach that in order to um, uh, experience salvation, in order to receive salvation, you have to be, for example, um, baptized, water baptized. Okay, suppose that view is out there. What does that do with this statement in Romans 1.16? If, if in fact, in order to have salvation, I must be water baptized, what's the conclusion we have to draw about Romans 1.16? You have to do a work. Mm-hmm. And and but 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 what what do we do? How do we interpret Romans 1.16 if I have to be baptized? You see the problem? The believing is not enough. Yeah. You must do something. Which 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 means Paul was wrong. Right? And and I mean it's you, you can come up with a whole list of things that, that people have thought. Um I I was invited once to a church that I reluctantly went to and they spent an hour uh, trying to explain to me uh, why I had to be water baptized and and and, and within moments of faith. If you, didn't, if you didn't immediately go from faith to the water, uh, then you were lost forever. Um, Paul's wrong. They, they, those, those two propositions, that one must be water baptized in order to receive salvation, and that one must simply believe in order to receive salvation, those don't say the same thing. Uh, they say something very different, and they can't both be true. They could both be false, but they can't both be true. And we could put in here uh, and, and try to correct Paul's theology by saying, uh, to everyone who believes plus baptism, all right, plus uh, being a, a member of, of the Catholic Church or the Baptist Church or whichever one you want to put in there, right, um, plus a lot of things, uh, plus uh, repent of all their sins, plus, um, you know, kind of get your, your ducks in a row, get your life cleaned up, you know, all these things. And, and what's, what's, what I want to drive home about this is this verse is either true or it's not. And it is a hermeneutical fallacy to say, well, uh, I hear what you're saying, but you've got to, you've got to, uh, 
uh, read scripture with scripture. You've got to compare scripture to scripture. Um, the reason we compare scripture to scripture is I should not interpret this verse in a way that makes another verse that is a clear passage um, false or, or, or it makes an inconsistency. Um, it does not mean when we say compare scripture with scripture that Paul says believe here, but maybe somewhere else it says, but you got to be baptized. And so we kind of add the two together. That's not what it means. Um, inerrancy is at issue. This uh, concept that theologians call inerrancy, that the Bible is actually true and authoritative, uh, it, it, it lives or dies on a verse like this. Either you have to just believe or Paul is wrong and the Bible is wrong. The Bible cannot be called inerrant if I'm saved by believing plus some other things that Paul didn't say. For Paul's statement to be correct, for it to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, superintended by the Holy Spirit, Paul's words are the words God wanted written. It, it can only be true if, you know, if, if you've got to do those other things, then Paul had to say it here. He had to say believing plus you got to be thrown in the baptismal or whatever else you want to add to it. Uh, it it's a problem. I hope that, that I'm making some sense here that that, you know, it's, it's, it's a hermeneutical fallacy, and it's a common one, to, to just gloss over what is the seminal statement in the book of Romans. That sentence is the seminal statement in the whole book. And to gloss over it and say, well, but, you know, over here in this other place, you know, here's Jesus talking about something, and, and, and he, he said to, um, you know, do this or do that. And so you've got to add them together. And so it's, yeah, it's belief, but you still got to do this, right? Uh, it's belief, but, you know, in your life, you better manifest that you uh, are a Christian by doing a bunch of good works. As soon as you add that stuff, Paul's wrong. I I'll leave it there unless there's a thought or a comment. I hope I'm making some sense. But um, this is the, this is the, uh, if I, if, if I were pinned down to say, well, what's the, uh, Central verse in, in Romans, it's this one, Romans 1.16, and really 17. It's all one thing. Uh, any any just comment about that that part so far? Yeah, pe people always want to get some type of work in there because it goes against their arrogance Fraud. that, you know, what do you mean? It's just by faith. I have to do something. And yeah. what about confess with your mouth? That, <laughs> they, that's a synonym, to confess with your mouth. Well, I think it's that Romans 10, whenever we get there, that just yep. people yep. use that. Is that the Romans road? Is it Romans 10? Yes, yes. People just make a mess of that. And if yeah. you really interpret it properly, it's easy, but... I, I think it's 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 a it's a passage that people may use and they make a total mess out of it. Yeah. Well, and, and when we get there, we'll deal a lot more with it. But I'll say at a high level, um, doing good hermeneutics. One of the one of the I think most underrated things that that needs to be done is to think about the structure of a book. And um, here in Romans, Paul's introductory statement about his doctrine is what I just read in Romans 1.16. It's a summary statement. 
together with verse 17. If you said, Paul, what's your gospel kind of thing? You know, his elevator speech in a, in a, in a sentence, these two verses, that it matters structurally that he's given us this. A lot of the New Testament books give us a prologue, something that tells us up front primarily what the book is about. Okay, it, it is in there. It, it's a summary. It, it's not intended to capture everything that's in the book, but it's telling us what the the, the core theme of the book is, the crux of the book. First uh, John opens with a prologue. Uh, James opens with a prologue. First Peter opens with a prologue, and it tells us these things. John's gospel has this beautiful prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and, and it gives us this direction. Uh, Paul will spend the first eight chapters laying out what this salvation is that he mentioned here. And, 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 and that's how it's organized. And then in 9 through 11, he's going to deal with the question about why so many Jewish people rejected the gospel. If Paul believed that what some people have called a sinner's prayer is a requirement for salvation, it has to be in Romans 1.16 or Romans 1.16 is false, and the Bible is not inerrant. Um, and people say, well, but it's in Romans 2.10. That didn't work that way. E either this sentence is true or it's not. And, and anyway, so when we get there, though, we'll deal with Romans 10. Uh, but that's a good, it's a good example of one of the things that gets added. And let me say, uh, uh, while you can't pray yourself into heaven, I think it's a common experience for those who have placed faith in Christ to want to pray. And I think it's a good thing if you're you're ministering that person to, to encourage that or even to lead them in prayer and thank God for what he's done for them. But that prayer is not what's saving them. That that prayer is, is a prayer of thanksgiving. So um, what about this matter of um, the, the, um, the word salvation? Now, this is where uh, I think we struggle a lot of times because we get uh, words take on a life of their own uh, because you hear them in church in this way or that. And I'm not saying it's always wrong, but but this word in particular will often have a particular meaning if I used it in a church context that may not be Paul's meaning. Uh, we use the word save as someone saved, and the scripture uses that that phraseology. But it really doesn't very frequently use it in the sense of save from a sin's penalty. Uh, it's 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 not the most common word, but the word Paul will use for the idea of being uh, saved in the sense in which we usually mean it is is going to be the word justify or justification. Uh, it's interesting that Paul will write. His most important epistle, his mangum opus, right, on soteriology, primarily in these first eight chapters, okay? And he will barely mention the word salvation. In fact, I think salvation doesn't come up again until after a chapter eight, as I recall. I think it may come up in um, chapter 10 or 11. The word salvation is a noun. It's a Greek word, soteria, uh, and it means deliverance. Now, context determines deliverance from what? Paul, uh, you know, will use the word save. Uh, save is a verb. Uh, it also means to deliver or rescue, and it has a wide range of meanings. It's not limited to rescuing people from hell or from sin or something like that. 
it's it's used in in the New Testament to save sozo as a verb is used for healing people of a sickness, waking them from sleep, the idea of saving them from drowning in, in the water. Uh, so it can be a physical deliverance. It can be used of, of again of like waking people up. It really has a broad array of meaning. But in Paul's writing, and here's here's the, the thing I just want to have you have in mind and think about. He is going to address this matter of justification, how someone becomes a Christian, how they, by faith alone, receive the free gift of the righteousness of Christ and forgiveness of sins. Uh, and he's going to do it from chapter 1 through chapter 4. He's going to offer some summary uh, material in chapter 5 about it. But in chapter 1 through 4, he's going to go through all of this without using the word save one time uh, in, 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 that, in, in that exegesis. Uh, that word saved doesn't come up until uh, chapter 5, uh, where he's going to reference uh, verse 9 in chapter 5. Since we have now been justified, that's his word, uh, by his blood, we will be saved, there it is for the first time, saved from wrath. So, so my, my point isn't that, that we shouldn't use the word saved to talk about how someone becomes a Christian. My point is a different one. Uh, to, to get the book of Romans, one of the worst things we can do is take an understanding we've developed about the word salvation and inject it into the book. We need to let the book show us what Paul means when he uses these words, uh, because there's a number of words, repent, wrath, save, salvation, uh, you know, uh, elect, that have sort of taken on a life of their own, and they almost have an assumed meaning. And and then and then when people are reading the text, we, we, we can take that assumed meaning and put it in here, and it may not be right, okay? So, um, what is the salvation that's at issue? I, I believe primarily and initially what Paul has in mind is, is salvation uh, from, from wrath, from the wrath of God. And he's going to deal with that um, immediately here in a, in a moment. Um, in a broader sense, though, everything he's going to talk about in chapters 1 through 8 is a, a salvation, a saving uh, not only from the penalty of our sin, which is the wrath of God, and ultimately that we would spend eternity apart from him, but even the the presence of sin in our life uh, as, as a believer and th things like that. And then, of course, ultimately, the, the, the I should probably have said the power of sin in our life, and then the, ultimately the presence of sin. Uh, you know, when we are in the kingdom, um, sin for us is going to be a thing of the past. It's going to be gone. Um, all of that, in a sense, is salvation. And, and the apostle likely um, has all of that in mind. But as he goes through it, he's simply not going to use that term very much. And, and it's, it's interesting that he would go through almost everything he has to say about how you become a Christian, doesn't use save once, and then it pops up in Romans 10, and people see, there it is, you gotta, you've got to cry out to the Lord to be saved. Well, what does he mean, be saved? Where would you look for that? Well, you better start in chapter one. I hope I'm making some sense. We'll lay this out. And if any of this, you know, kind of sets off a red flag for you, just 
we got to take it a chunk at a time, but when we get there, we'll deal with, you know, the, you know, the hard passages or whatever. Uh, but looking here uh, at Romans 117, Romans 116 says to the Jew and also to the Greek. So um, uh, there's a lot of people on, on Facebook and these groups that I'm, I've been added to um, that have this idea that there's a different plan for the Gentiles than the Jews, or a different plan for the, quote, church, which they think is Gentile, and Jews. Um, and, and it comes out with these, these folks saying that, uh, you know, like like the Gospel of Matthew uh, has no, no role in the life of a Christian, uh, because it's, it's really just written to Jewish people, and, and it's all under the law, and it, it has no, no application. And, and they similarly get rid of James because he writes to the people in the diaspora and, uh, the, you know, the 12 tribes and first Peter, that's gone. Second Peter's gone because these are all books that are, are to Jews. Um, it's, it's absurd. Uh, we know as a matter historically that uh, the story of the Gospels, at least in, 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 a, in a big picture, is that Jesus Christ brings the law, that covenant to an end and inaugurates a new covenant whose blessings are not limited to the Jewish people. Uh, the promises of the Old Testament, a lot of the, the, the new covenant promises are made to national Israel, but there is a, a sort of grafting in that the apostle will talk about when we get to Romans 11 and 12. And, and, uh, and my point is that all of our New Testament books, even though some of them contain material where Jesus is teaching and interpreting the law, they're all written after the new covenant has been implemented. And, and a core aspect of the new covenant is that, that salvation is open to, to everybody, and it's through the same means. There's not a Jewish message and a Gentile message. And, and I'll hear people will say, well, you know, Paul's the Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles, and so we follow Paul's gospel. Paul would be highly offended to hear people saying they follow his gospel as opposed to Peter's, especially since in Galatians 2, he confirms that that Peter and, and, and himself were teaching the same gospel. Okay. Um, so 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 just when you when you see this Jew and Gentile, just understand this is a shocking statement in its original context. Salvation is by believing plus absolutely nothing else. And it's the same way for Jews and Gentiles. It doesn't matter your skin color, your social status, your financial status. Um, you, you know, it, nothing about that matters. None of those physical externalities, you know, what ethnicity and stuff, you're saved the same way. And it's by believing plus absolutely nothing else. Jews and Greeks. Um, then he goes on and he says, for in it, okay, um, in this, this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. It's a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. This is a powerful statement, too. Uh, and, and these two verses together, they are the book of Romans sort of, uh, you know, at the highest level. It's, it's, his, it's his central statement of theology that everything else kind of builds on or relates to in some way as we get later in the book. Um, the righteousness of God is revealed in this gospel 
uh, in two ways. First of all, the gospel explains how it is that a righteous, holy God can relate to sinful man at all, because there's there's an inconsistency there. Uh, when you read First John chapter one verse five, he says, "God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. He is um, completely perfect in His moral character, and 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 therefore it creates a real problem about how can God possibly have fellowship with sinners." And, and Paul's kind of getting at that. Um, the gospel explains how a holy God can have a relationship with sinful man, okay? So the gospel, of course, will involve Jesus's death for our sins, uh, the shedding of his blood, and, and that will explain how a holy God can do it. And in that way, uh, God's forgiveness on the basis of faith alone in Christ um, doesn't make him in any way unholy. In fact, it reveals his righteousness, but it's also revealed in that the gospel, uh, is, is, is Paul will, will lay it out in this broad sense. And we talked about that last week. Paul's not confining himself to a creed like the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He's got a much broader uh, view of this. It's, it's all of what we'll see in Romans 1 through 8. It's not merely to bring people to Christ. It is to show them that as Christians, they are no longer under, do, under the dominion of sin. And, and, that, and that just as they are not brought to Christ by their works, they are not going to live out their Christian walk successfully by works. They're going to live it out by faith. Uh, they're going to go from faith to faith. The initial faith is is coming to to trusting in Christ alone uh, for your for your uh, salvation, but but it doesn't end there. And this word faith isn't some amorphous thing. When people say, "Well, you've got to have faith," um, Christians don't just have faith. They have faith in a person, and they have faith that is belief. That's all faith means to believe. They have faith in what this person has said, which we have now recorded in this completed canon that we call the Bible. It's the reason we spend time on Saturday morning studying it when, when we, we could be doing a whole lot of other things, because we know that our Christian life is from faith to faith, not from work to work. We have the truth of the scripture, and, and, and to go from to, to live by faith is to live on the basis of believing that what God said is true. And, and if we do that, uh, that's that fundamentally is how one renews their mind. Not believing what the world said was true, but what God said was true and living on the basis of that. That's how people mature. We call it uh, sometimes sanctification. And Paul's going to spend a lot of time on that uh, in, the, in the later chapters of this first uh, big unit of, of eight. So uh, this is quite a, a fantastic statement that the righteous will live uh, by, by, by faith. Um, that's the whole thing. It's why when he writes Galatians, you get to chapter three and he says, how foolish you would be, how in fact bewitched he says, to think that you could start in this faith, start as a Christian uh, by the spirit of God, but that somehow you're going to finish on the basis of your works. And, and what he's saying here is, is much the same thing. The Christian walk, the way Paul envisions it for us, is from faith to faith, 
not from work to work. Um, and and he'll he'll outline in great detail in chapter seven uh, his own failure to be able to live the Christian walk as a list of rules and doing of the rules. And and his discovery is, you know what, it won't work. It, it has to do uh, instead with a working of the Spirit in our life and faith, believing what what God said. So let me pause there before we uh, get to the. <laughs> the hard stuff in Romans one, but a thought thought on those those two summary statements, Romans one, sixteen and seventeen. Um hearing hearing none. Uh let's let's look at what happens. Now he 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 starts with the answer in, in, in those first two verses. But it's an answer at a high level in a summary fashion, but it's important. He, he needs to start there. Uh, the apostle knows he has a mixed audience. He, he, he anticipates they're Christians, but they're mixed in the sense that they have uh, Jews and Gentiles and people have various backgrounds. Rome was a very metropolitan city. There's people of all kinds of beliefs. And, and you know, when you become a Christian, all those old beliefs don't just automatically go away. Um, and sometimes they, they, they pop up and, and they, they get us, you know, confused and stuff. And so, He's dealing with this mixed audience, and so he's going to talk about uh, the problem uh, that needs solving. And and remember too that you know we talked last week. Uh, we're not 100 sure how the church in Rome started, but the Apostle Paul had never been there. His concern is to make sure that they are on a good doctrinal footing, and it's why he writes his longest epistle to them. Um, to to really canvas most of his theology, and in, in, in particular, what he calls his gospel, in the broad sense of how someone becomes a Christian and how they ought then to live. And uh, so he has to get to, why do you even need uh, this salvation uh, that he just announced? This Why do you need this gospel that's the power of God and the salvation? And, and the reason is because apart from Christ, uh, we're in a mess. Uh, the picture he paints in, in Romans 1 is bleak. Um, some structural observations are to be made. Uh, Paul will say everything he's going to say from Romans 1.18 to the end of Romans 1, and he doesn't cite any verses in the Old Testament. It should jump out at us. Uh, it's It's interesting the way he structures it. He wants to get out there what the problem is, um, Gentiles wouldn't be so concerned that he doesn't quote Old Testament. Jewish people would. And while he does quote a couple of verses in, in Romans 2, uh, two or three verses, he really, you know, says very little of actual citing of Scripture. It's not until you get to Romans 3, verse 10, that he says, as it's written. And then he begins some verses that, uh, we, you know, when we get there, we'll talk more about that. Are uh, have for a long time been used uh, to um, as a proof text for Reformed theology. It actually teaches the opposite. We'll we'll see that, but just no, note that 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 he doesn't. He's not going to uh, quote verses. Uh, what he is going to do is lay out the problem. But I, I think you know for us to back up big picture. Remember in Genesis we have this event we call the fall, 
And uh, when I learned that in Sunday school and, and then later through a number of sermons, I've always been taught that, you know, God said if they ate from the tree of knowledge, they would die. And he didn't, he wasn't really, really talking about um, uh, death in the sense that we usually think of it. And, and what really happened is they, quote, spiritually died when, when they ate from that. Uh, as I've reflected more on that as I've gotten older, um, you know, the text doesn't say that. And, 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 and what I'm going to try to show you is Paul doesn't say it in Romans either. But something did happen. Something did change. Um, they're exiled from the garden, and and the, the Moses immediately takes us to the episode in, in Genesis 4 where one brother kills another. And when he's when he's quizzed about why he did it and, and, and stuff, his thinking, his statements are just they don't make sense, you know. He he's mad at God because or you know, he kills Abel because God was more approving of Abel's sacrifice than Cain's. Something changes there, and 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 it's part of the task of, of of the Christian to develop a Christian worldview to understand how it is that humanity changes when, uh, you know, post the fall and apart from 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 Christ. And in Romans one and two, will do that uh, in a, in a very succinct way. So let's let's look at that with that in mind. Uh, Romans one eighteen says that God's wrath is revealed, present tense, from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let's just, we'll stop there. Um, this whole passage is packed, but along the way, we want to get hold of a couple of these key words, a few of these key words. The first one is wrath. Um, I said earlier, words take on a life of their own. And, 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 and often uh, a very simple mistake is made in reading the scripture that because a word might mean something in one place, uh, we, we want to make it have that meaning everywhere. However, uh, for whatever reason, um, I think wrath is often assumed to mean hell, that, that, that uh, the wrath of God in the New Testament, wrath is, you know, hell. It's people in the lake of fire or something. Um, Paul doesn't use that word that way even one time, to my knowledge, never uses it, and it's present tense, and as we read the chapter, he's going to tell us what, what, you know, actions follow God's wrath. Wrath is, is, uh, uh, it just means anger, uh, hot anger, it's, it's the Greek word orge, uh, it's, it's, uh, strong displeasure anger uh and and what i want to suggest to you and is is in in you know i'll try to prove it to you along the way as we go through this don't think of wrath as is is hell um wrath is always in the scripture it seems in the new testament i'm talking especially paul's writings is god's anger poured out in real time it could be now could be future during the tribulation when certain judgments happen could be back in the Genesis, like in Sodom and Gomorrah, when, when God's wrath was displayed. Um, but just hold off from thinking about it as hell, because he says it's revealed present tense from heaven. That's that's in the moment when Paul's writing, and it's now. So this isn't uh, the future abode of, of people separated from Christ or anything like that. 
um, how is God's wrath poured out? In the scripture, if you read the whole Old Testament, the answer is in lots of ways. For example, um, sometimes, but it's rare, God would bring wrath in what we might call a day of the Lord, in a sense, where, uh, and that's the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, uh, type event. Um, that's the event of 586, 587 that we studied about in Ezekiel when when he uh, allows Nebuchadnezzar to take the city of Jerusalem. Those seem to be more of an exception than the norm, but they happen in Scripture. But there's other ways he does it. In the book of Judges, when the people become rebellious, God just takes his hands off and allows some of their neighbors to come in and start taking their crops and things like that. Um, what will he say here in Romans? Because this is going to be the normative way in which the wrath of God uh, is poured out on, on sin. And he mentions two words here. It's revealed from heaven, so God's the source behind this wrath. And is it is specifically against godlessness and unrighteousness of people. Um, those words aren't synonyms; they're they're different, and and that's an important uh, thing about you know studying our Bibles, is that words really never get wasted in the Bible. And when God uses two words instead of one, He probably means two different things, you know, and and, and they're related here in this sentence. But godliness, um, a, a sabia, is kind of a, it's kind of like what it sounds like. It's it's a lack of reverence for God. It's it's sacrilegious. And we're going to see that play out in a minute. He's going to explain how that happened, how they became irreverent, um, no longer recognizing the reality of God. But then there's unrighteousness. Um, it's, it's a Greek word, adikia, it's it's a quality of of like wickedness or injustice. It's what we think of when we hear unrighteousness. But you see, the words are a little different. To to be godless is is what it sounds like. To to not have God in your thinking, to not have God in your you certainly aren't thankful to Him or reverent. Uh, it's it's sacrilegious. But to be unrighteous is to uh, do these things that are unjust or wicked. Uh, and 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 that's what the wrath is being poured out against, and and that creates a real problem because you know what? Sometimes I do both of these things, and probably so do you. If you're honest, you have your moments, even as believers. If God's wrath is poured out on these things, what are we to do? It creates a real a real problem. But this is reality, and of course, He's going to present a solution in chapter three, and the solution is that we can be righteous by faith. And I, I call it by faith righteousness because it's not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ credited to us so that what? The wrath of God isn't poured out on us anymore. That's where it's going. Um, these people that receive this wrath are people who by unrighteousness, and listen to this, is so important, so important, they suppress the truth. This The balance of this chapter is not merely about what people do. It's how they think. When you think about the consequences of the fall, the consequences are what he's going to spell out here, and it has affected how we think. 
I'll hear some some crazy things happening in the world and it gets reported on the news. But the crazier thing is when a Christian says, I just don't understand what they're talking about, what they're doing. I don't get it. Read Romans 1. They're acting the way. They're talking the way. They're expressing the ideas the way God said they would. So in our media, are they suppressing the truth? Yeah. Are, are, are politicians out there suppressing the truth? Are professors at the seminaries, professors in, in the universities? Sure, people all over. And we're capable of doing it as well. Um, these people, through their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Ideas have more power than anything. And, and it's this departure from the truth, by the way. Now, what do we mean by the truth? Um, do we mean a, a proposition of truth, like two plus two is four? Um, truth is is um, is is a little different. I, I think, and I didn't look it up. I think truth here is aletheia. Um, I'm sure Judd will know. I, I didn't look it up. There are a couple of other words that can be used for it. But typically in the scripture, it's aletheia. John uses it perhaps the most. Uh, I will suggest to you that the truth can simply mean aletheia, um, that something is truthful. Uh, if you look in a, a lexicon, it will also tell you that the truth can have a sense of referring to reality as it really is. And, and what I want to suggest to you in Paul's thinking, suppressing the truth isn't just a particular truth proposition. It's really uh, a war, in a sense, against reality, and reality is what God says it is. And so the truth of God, of his person, uh, and, and, you know, are things that, that are under attack, and they want to suppress the truth, which means what? To hide it from people. Uh, why? Verse 19 gives the, the, the answer, because, he says, what can be known about God is evident among them, for God's shown it to them. Um, this I said this book takes things away from you. One of the things it'll take away is a reformed notion of, of total depravity. Um, if people are born totally depraved, none of this makes any sense. How are you going to make them worse off? Uh, what this is presenting is, is, is people um, who are changing. And Paul describes them as a group uh, to illustrate the problem of, of uh, what, what we are apart from Christ and in our thinking and so forth. But it plays out in individuals. So he's going to talk about a group, but it really is what happens to individuals. And, and, and the solution is individualized because faith is something only you can do for yourself. Uh, someone else can't have the faith for you. That, that will be the solution. What can be known about God is evident among them. Uh, it's, it's not that, that they were so depraved that they never knew anything about God. He, he's saying that, that we take what we do know, and, and is this what, if we want to call it a sin nature, we can. He's not going to use that term, but he'll use the word flesh later. Um, but it's not, it's, that's not about our bodies. It's, it's our whole person has been tainted in some way, where we, we suppress the truth. Apart from Christ, we suppress the truth particularly the truth about God and, and the reality of God, and we push it away. But it's not because we never had some knowledge of it. We don't want anything to do with that knowledge. 
And so what became, what was known about God is evident, but God because God's shown it to them. In fact, in verse 20, his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what has been made. Um, it's interesting, you know, have a whole thing about um, a whole study, uh, a field of study now called apologetics. And I'll just say at a, at a high level, uh, I find a lot of the apologetics persons will say how weak the argument is that we can see God in creation. Paul thinks it's a good argument. In Paul's time, they had neither telescope nor microscope. Science um, is our friend, good science. And good science, as it explores the universe through the Hubble telescope and now the James Webb telescope, um, is seeing uh, into distant galaxies. And what we're finding is the universe is not only extraordinarily complex, it's so fine-tuned that famous uh, uh, astronomers uh, like Hoyle, who created the, the, the steady state uh, concept, the idea that the, the universe always existed, uh, which is not widely held anymore. But, uh, you know, he had to eventually admit that it looks like there, you know, there's no way to explain why the universe could ever be created the way it is. There's too many constants holding the universe together, in a sense, that are so fine-tuned, and if they differed by like, like uh, one ten-thousandth, the universe would not support life. And in fact, it, well, some of these, if they differ just a little bit, there'd be no carbon in the universe. And, and so you look at the things that are seen, and as we've got devices like telescopes to see more than Paul could see, they haven't um, done away with God. They've shown us a more, even more compelling case that God, powerful, uh, created this universe. And on a micro level, as we've learned more, much more than Darwin knew in the 1800s when he published his Origin of the Species, uh, you know, he, he knew nothing about the internal structure of a cell, a single cell in our body. He just thought there was some kind of goo in there. Now that we have microscopes and we know so much about the internal workings of the cell, the complexity is beyond belief. There's so much we don't know. But what we can say, and what one writer, uh, Michael Behe, whose books I strongly recommend, his last name is B-E-H-E, -E, uh, he calls it uh, irreducible complexity. There's no way these things could have evolved through natural processes. Um, there's too many components. It either all pops into existence at one time or, or it doesn't ever exist because if you have one component without another, it just doesn't work. And so I'm just saying this creation argument Paul's making has gotten increasingly strong with advances in science because we can, in a, in a sense, see more of the creation and they confirm. Uh, but what happens? They confirm an intelligent designer but people are so bent on suppressing the truth that they won't admit it no matter how obvious the, the evidence. As a result, Paul says, they're without excuse. For they knew God, see, for though they knew God, that doesn't sound like depravity, um, they did not glorify him as God. This is a fascinating thing. One of the first things he talks about after suppressing the truth is not glorifying him as God or showing gratitude. Instead, 
their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Uh, this will probably be the last verse we'll do because we're about time. Let me say this. Um, as we go through this, and I'm, I'm belaboring it because it's such critical information, uh, it, it, this, this is some of, most, some of the most important information. The whole of Scripture is right here in Romans 1. We need to understand what the problem is. And part of that problem, uh, as a result of the fall, is that, that apart from Christ, our thinking, thinking has become worthless. Whatever the solution to the problem is, it needs to deal with the problem itself. Um, people will say, well, you know, I think many roads lead to the mountaintop. The problem is you, 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 you people say that and, and they don't, they don't say what the problem is that those roads to the mountaintop are solving. Once you realize what the problem is, the real predicament that we're in, there's no possible way logically that there can be any but one road. And that one road has to be the power of God. Um, because the problem, it, it, this isn't a, a behavioral management problem. We do bad things. Our thinking has been corrupted. He calls it worthless. It, it's, it's, it's empty. It's futile. Uh, the became worthless is, a, is actually a, a noun, metaio. Uh, it, it's become futile. It, you know, think about that. We gather a bunch of people with, with PhDs and they, they, they put their heads together and explain how the universe got here apart from God. And I'm not saying that this isn't a, a thing about science being bad. I'm not saying that at all. I'm telling you, apart from Christ, our thinking is, is, is become futile and this, this has a real impact. And to watch the things on the news and hear how people think and what would drive people to hijack a plane and, and run it into the, to the Twin Towers you know, the, the two towers, um, the World Trade Towers, you know, their thinking is corrupted. People really are the way God said they are in Romans 1. And their senseless hearts were darkened. And that's the the, past, you know, the, the phrase to end on. Hearts is cardia. Uh, heart never actually, in, in, that I'm aware of in the New Testament, means the organ. Um, it is used to mean uh, your, your inner mental life might be a short definition it's your inner person uh, we can just just driving somewhere we're by ourselves if we're not singing to the radio or whatever we're just thinking and our mind is doing all kinds of stuff uh, but we call it our mind because we think of our brain but it, it's our heart now mind is different we'll get to that next time well it's related it's related uh, mind has to do with how the heart is oriented how it's bent in a particular direction in a sense um, but but they're very related. But this is how people think. Um, and, and he's saying their thinking's become worthless and their heart was darkened. Now, remember where this ends up. He says, if you don't want to be conformed to the world, you're going to have to renew your mind. Okay. Which, as I said, it's going to relate to your heart. So th this makes sense now. If at the core of our problem is, is not merely that we do things that bring God's wrath, we think in a way that brings God's wrath, then the solution is going to have to help us with this problem uh, that our hearts were darkened. And no matter how we may not like to think about it, apart from Christ, before we became Christians, this was our reality. And, 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 and that's not what the culture thinks today. They want people to be fundamentally good. This isn't fundamentally good. This is really, really bad. 
because people that think this way, okay, uh, as you think, so a man is. Uh, if you think this way, your conduct is going to follow. So uh, let me stop the rear, stop the recording. I'm, uh, we can have some time for a question or comments.